I just want to mention two items for uh, prayer. One is a number, of, a number of the ministry team leaders are going to be meeting this evening before our evening worship service uh, for prayer, for discussion, uh, sharing, mutual encouragement. Uh, that's also a reminder for the ministry team leaders, if you have forgotten. Uh, but that will be a, a time at 5 p.m. This, this evening. I ask that you'd pray for that time. And then as Armin prayed for, uh, the session is going to be meeting uh, Friday night and Saturday all day for a retreat, an important time for prayer and and reflection on our current ministry here at at PCC. Uh, We're going to be particularly focusing on the uh, shepherding ministry, uh, as well as taking some time on on direction, and if I might use the word vision, and uh, what God has for us in in the months uh, ahead. So I ask that you be praying this, this week for that time for the session that it would uh, bear fruit. Well, in Hebrews chapter 4, a well-known passage of Scripture, we're told that the Word of God is described as uh, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, uh, discerning the thoughts, judging the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of people. Sharper than any double-edged sword, which means, among other things, that God's word is dangerous. God's word is dangerous. I remember the first day of seminary. Shelley and I had just driven 2,500 miles from Seattle to Orlando. This was orientation, and one of our New Testament professors stood up and said, You are in a dangerous place. And I thought to myself, kind of looking around, Did I go in the wrong door? What happened? Am I in the right place? But he's right, as he went on, that the Word of God is dangerous when you handle it, when you read it, when you examine it, because it will be an aroma of life to some, but it will be an aroma of death to others. It cuts, it pierces, it convicts. And the way that dangerous things are handled rightly and with care is by understanding their proper purpose, their proper use. You misuse a knife and it cuts, it hurts deeply. The same is true of the Bible, of God's law, his commands and his word. And one of, not the only, but one of the central purposes of God's word and God's law is to serve as a mirror. It shows us who we are, it shows people who they are, and therefore their need for mercy and grace in their lives. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. He says, So then the law, the law of God, was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we, we might be justified by faith. If you read that text in other versions, it says the law was our trainer, or our schoolmaster, or our tutor, To lead us to Christ. The actual word is pedagogue. It's where we get pedagogy, the method or practice of teaching. The law is our pedagogue. The word, the law of God, is our mirror and our teacher, showing us our need for God's grace and where it is found. And as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, if you want to turn to Matthew 3, not only will we see God's word and law point us to our need for mercy and grace, but we're actually helped by a particular individual who actually serves himself as a kind of law of God in the flesh. 
He serves as a mirror, this man, showing us and showing people their sin, therefore their need for repentance and the grace of God. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 3, as we continue in uh, Matthew's gospel. Matthew 3, verse 1. Listen now to God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." You read that text, and for me, two words come to mind, fire and brimstone. Uh, That's kind of what it sounds like. Would not be perhaps a popular, well-received message in our culture today. It sounds a little bit more like words from that well-known or most most well-known sermon ever preached in America by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's a sermon, in fact, he preached a couple of times. One in Enfield, July 1741. Edwards preached those words on the text Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, for the time when their foot shall slip. The day of calamity is at hand. And here's what Edwards said in that very well-known sermon. He said, the bow of God's wrath is bent, the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart. God holds you over the pit like a spider over a fire. His wrath burns like fire. And in many ways, John is coming with that kind of weightiness. He comes as a kind of law of God in the flesh. He's traveling, he's ministering about with very heavy words. And he's serving in many ways like a mirror. He's showing people two things. One, their sinfulness. And two, how to properly respond to sin. 
in a sinful condition. Showing them their sinfulness and the proper response to sin, which is repentance. Now, many people might want to dismiss this figure, John. He kind of comes out of nowhere, for one. We've been introduced to the person of Jesus in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew, in his genealogy, in his birth, in his infancy. But then we move into chapter 3, and we have fast-forwarded many years, nearly 30 years, to the introduction, nearly, of Jesus' ministry. Where does John come from? We're simply told in the first verse, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. He's a bit of an ascetic kind of figure, a wanderer type. Two, he's also a bit fiery. He's got a sharp message and tone. Would not be popular today. And then three, he's not all that tidy, really. He's kind of a bit unkept as a character. He's got a strange diet, and he's got a strange outfit. But John has some very powerful things going for him. For one, he is God's chosen man. Now, Matthew does not tell us this, but in Luke's gospel, we learn that John is the son of Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth. And that John's birth and life is the direct result of God's intervention and unfolding plan of redemption. As we're told in Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to Zechariah, telling him that Elizabeth in her old age will bear a son, and you are to name him John. He will be great before the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit. Kind of like the, the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. In other words, God had his hand upon John and John's purpose before John was even born. But also, Matthew tells us later in chapter 11, verse 14, that this John is the Elijah figure promised of old, right? His life is the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Malachi in the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Matthew tells us this John is that Elijah figure. That day has dawned. That day has come. Here in this figure, John. Sometimes God is up to something much more than we realize. That was very true in John's day and ministry. Though many people around him were unaware, this was the beginning of a new epoch. A new time in the history of God's redeeming mercies. John was preparing the way for the Lord's coming. For the King of kings to come. And what was he declaring? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, God was inaugurating, God was beginning the final stage of his rule and his reign upon the earth. Like a flood like a volcano. It was the eruption of God's power and presence 
being established on the earth. It was breaking into history in a most dramatic way. That which rules heaven was becoming established and breaking in upon the earth. We're going to be hearing much about the kingdom of heaven, which is language distinctive to Matthew. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven language. Uh, The other gospel writers and elsewhere in the New Testament, kingdom of God. They are essentially synonymous. But the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is going to preach the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is going to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This idea that heaven is not merely a destination, a future place in which Christians go. No, this heaven, this rule, is broken into the earth and has significant implications for us as Christians living today. The parables throughout Matthew that Jesus teaches us are primarily focused on the nature of this kingdom. And so we have much to look forward to in understanding and embracing this kingdom rule. In a sense, John here, in preparing the way, was kind of laying down a red carpet of sorts. He's drawing attention, he's preparing the way for the coming of this kingdom and the coming of this king to the earth. If you were going to have a guest in your home, not any guest, but a one-time visit, someone you deeply admire and or deeply respect, perhaps a favorite musician, a favorite author, a favorite athlete, what would you do in preparation for the coming of this person? I'll tell you, you would clean up. You might have a clean house already, You might have a cluttered house. Either way, you would go the extra mile to prepare, to clean up, to get your house ready, to get yourself ready. Not to give a false impression, but to honor this guest in the best way possible. To make room and to honor this person. Well, John here, it not only tells us to prepare for this great visit, this coming king, but John helps us prepare He helps us prepare our lives for the coming and presence of Christ. In fact, John not only introduces Christ, he shares in the ministry of Christ himself. Because notice how John begins his ministry. He not only tells us that, that Christ is coming. What are we told? John came preaching. He came preaching in the wilderness. This is just how Jesus begins his ministry. John starts his ministry the same way that our Lord Jesus begins. Preaching. And not only that, according to Matthew, his message is identical uh, to that of Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you turn the page to chapter 4, verse 17 you'll see Jesus begins with the same message precisely. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right at the beginning of both John's ministry and later Jesus' ministries, there's something vitally important we learn about our Christian faith. And that is, it is to be public. It's to be public. 
not merely private. The evil one would greatly desire that our faith remain a private matter only. It is one of the great schemes of the evil one, certainly in our day. Our culture, I think our culture, while it is indifferent as to what you believe, our culture does not care what you believe, it only demands one thing. Keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. We have to respond to that. We have to live in that reality and in light of that. It's a tremendous encouragement to hear of the Sunday school class that the women are participating in about hospitality. Ways in which we can open our lives to one another and to the world. That the world might see who we are, what we believe. And to be able to bear witness beyond our private lives and bringing our faith into public. This is what we see demonstrated in John. It's what we'll see later in Jesus' ministry and his disciples. They bring it right out into the open. A voice crying in the wilderness. John is preparing the way for the coming of Christ. It seems that when someone important is about to take the stage to give a lecture or speech of some kind, there's someone always preceding them uh, to introduce them, to speak of their credentials, their accomplishments, their distinction. But in Jesus' case, a person's entire life purpose exists for that reason. John, to get people's attention, to prepare people, to make space in your life for the coming of this King, this Messiah. Notice, though, that John not only prepares the way, But as he prepares the way here, he points out the false and inadequate ways that people might respond. He points out false religiosity. As he prepares the way, he addresses false and inadequate ways that people might respond. Notice when he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees what he says. Verse 7. You brood of vipers. In other words, you pack of snakes. Not pleasant language. Uh, This is the first time, but it's not going to be the last time, that we hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Gospel of Matthew. Both of these groups developed a hundred or more years prior to the coming of Christ. They were well-developed. They both resided primarily in, uh, in Jerusalem, kind of the center of political and religious life in Judaism. The Pharisees, on the one hand, were really the religious power brokers. Uh, particularly, they were scrupulous about God's law. God's law. And they saw themselves with those who had the authority to interpret the law of God. So that if anyone challenged them and their interpretation, they saw it as a threat. They saw it as a threat to themselves. They saw it as a threat to God's law itself. But then you have the Sadducees. They were a little bit different. They were a more elitist group. Uh, They only held, held to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And because they held to a literal interpretation of God's law and commands, And they saw no mention of an afterlife. They denied the concept of a resurrection altogether. They did not believe in life after death. 
They're easy to remember. You've probably heard this before, but perhaps some of the children or youth. Easy to remember. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they are sad, you see. Very good. They are sad, you see. But important for us is this. Very important. Not only did they come together, the Sadducees and Pharisees, to form the Jewish Sanhedrin, kind of the Jewish Supreme Court, but their view and their relationship to God's law led them not only to separate themselves from the world, but they began to see themselves as above the world. Not only did, it, did they separate themselves from the world, but their view of the law moved them to a place where they saw the world as beneath them. This is in part what deeply troubled John And it's what deeply troubles Jesus. This is in great part why Jesus tells the parable of the tax collector and Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. I would encourage you to turn there. I'm going to read that parable so we get a taste of where John is coming from and later where Jesus is coming from. And it has to do in great part with the way the Pharisees used or misused the law of God. Luke 18, 9. The preface is all important. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men, he said, went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and he represents the Pharisees here, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, Standing by himself, prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then he said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. You see, when our view and our adherence to God's law or word not only distinguishes us from the world, of course, we are people of God's law and God's word. That distinguishes us from the world. But when it begins to move us to look down and hold contempt or bring condemnation upon the world, you and I are moving into dangerous, dangerous ground. It was that attitude, in great part, that troubled John and then Jesus. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not see God's law and God's word as a rule of life. Important language, a rule of life. That's... Confession language from the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can read of that in chapter 19 of our confession. They did not see God's word or God's law as a rule of life. That is, a way to respond and express loving obedience to the grace and mercy of our God. That's not how they saw it. They saw his law as a way to life with God thinking that their obedience obtained for them their place in fellowship with God. 
It had to do with association. They thought it was their association with God's law, their association with God's covenant people, their association with Abraham, that somehow put them in a right position with God. And yet, what does John say? You brood of vipers. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John is essentially saying that while they were surrounded by religious things, devoted to those religious things, they were lifeless. Can this still happen today? It's kind of like being adrift at sea and yet potentially dying of thirst while surrounded by an endless supply of water. Salt water. It would only dehydrate a person all the more. Dying of thirst while surrounded by an endless supply of water. That was the life of the Pharisees. Surrounded by religious laws, some their own, religious people, religious devotion, but inside they were dying. How is that possible? How is it possible to have the law of God, the word of God, to be around the people of God, to be devoted to the service of God, and yet without life? Can that happen? Well, in one word, John summarizes it for us. In one word, John summarizes the pathway, the necessary doorway to have life with God. One word captures, in many ways, our Christian faith. And it's the word repentance. Repentance. It's not service to God that he points out. It's not love of neighbor. It's not observance to the commandments of God or the law of God. All of which are imperatives and commands in Scripture, all of which are important to us. No, it's repentance. John mentions it three times in this narrative. In verse 2, as he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He mentions it again in verse 8, as he tells the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. The New Testament word for repentance there is metanoia. In simplest form, repentance means to turn or to return. In my own definition, I put it this way. Repentance is a heartfelt conviction over sin, resulting in a change of one's thinking, emotions, and will, and thus producing a whole new orientation to life. Now here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, defines it. Repentance to life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of sin and understanding of God's mercy, with hatred towards sin, turns from it to God with full purpose to live in obedience. Conviction of sin understanding of God's mercy, and then turning from it to God in a faithful trust. 
Now, notice the difference between John and Jesus. John is preaching about repentance. He's calling people to repentance. He's warning them of the consequences without repentance, apart from a life of repentance. And he's baptizing with water, which is a picture of people's need for repentance. But then he says in verse 11 that I baptize you with water for repentance. I show you your need to repent. But he who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism that Jesus performs is not only water baptism, it is a baptism that is a washing, a cleansing, a renewal by the Holy Spirit Himself. Baptism with the Holy Spirit, or baptism in the Holy Spirit. That is a phrase used about six times in the New Testament. It refers to the regenerating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit upon conversion. It's not the filling of the Holy Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit, as the Apostle Paul speaks about. This is baptism by the Holy Spirit. This is the regenerating work that occurs upon conversion. That's what we read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. That God saved us not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration. The washing of rebirth by the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. And repentance, repentance is the doorway to renewal and sanctification in the Holy Spirit. When John preaches repent, he doesn't mean repent once. This repentance begins and it continues. It's in the present active. It's ongoing. We are to have lives defined by repentance. It's not only entry into life with God. Repentance really is the fuel of the Holy Spirit what He uses to continue to sanctify us in many, many ways. It's what He works in us. So I want to give us three signs of true versus counterfeit repentance. Three signs of true versus counterfeit repentance. I have taken these from the Scottish minister, John Calhoun, from the 18th century, Three biblical signs, and more could be said, of a true versus counterfeit repentance. Number one, false repentance flows from the effort to make obedience to God's law a condition for life with God. False repentance flows from the effort to make obedience to God's law a condition for life with God. True repentance flows from a faith that knows acceptance by God based on the grace of the gospel, based on the grace of what God has accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. 
Right? True repentance, true brokenness does not come by human will to conform to the law of God. It is motivated out of God's love in Jesus Christ. This was central to the Pharisees' idolatry. Instead of repentance and faith, what did they do? They began to misuse the law of God. This is when it becomes extremely dangerous. They turned the law into the doorway of who is in and who is out. This is exactly what Paul preached against in Galatians 3, verse 2. When he said to those believers, Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? You began by the Spirit. Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? True repentance says, I am God's child only for the grace of the gospel. And my obedience, my obedience is never the cause. It is always the fruit of our acceptance as God's child. Number two. In counterfeit repentance, the sinner only feels a sorrow for the consequences of sin. Counterfeit repentance is when the sinner only feels a sorrow for the consequence of his sin. But in true repentance, the believer has a sincere mourning for his sin, a loathing and hatred in the sight of it, and a true desire of deliverance from its power and practice. So insightful here. Feeling sorry or sorrow because when I sin it causes me pain or it causes other people pain is not a sign of true repentance. Much of the world feels bad or sorrow for the pain that sin brings to their lives and to the lives of other people. No one likes to feel the consequences of sin, whether you are a believer or one is not. But true repentance is an inward mourning, brokenness and hatred of sin, of transgressing the God that has called us. Notice that he does not say true repentance leads to no more sin. No, it leads to mourning, loathing of sin. It leads to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. What does he say? I don't understand my actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where repentance and brokenness leads a person. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And yet, there is good news in this brokenness. In this broken body, there may be peace. During a hard time in my own personal life, God's word and God's grace led me to one of the Puritans, William Bridge. In this book called A Lifting Up for the Downcast, 
a set of uh, sermon series or uh, sermons preached all in the same text in uh, Psalm 42 by David. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why disquieted within me? Listen to these words from Bridge. He says, are you troubled over sin? You may have rest and quiet in this, that you indeed are troubled over your sin. You have no peace in your sin, but you have peace in this, that you can have no peace in your sin. You don't have peace about sin, but you can have peace about this, that if you're troubled about sin, you're in a good place. You can have peace because you don't have peace about sin. That is a true sign of real brokenness and repentance in the Christian life. He also says, true saving peace loves to be examined, is willing to be examined. It loves to be tried. But false peace cannot endure examination. It flies from the light. It does not love to be tried. Christians are people who in repentance, recognize their sin, they feel a mourning over it, they're broken over it. But they want God to examine them. Try me, O Lord. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's a sign of true repentance. And then third, counterfeit repentance comes from enmity to God and His law. But true repentance from love to God and His law, His Word. A true turning or returning to the Lord flows from love. It's not burdensome. It's not mere, a mere weightiness, a weight for us. It comes from the motive of love for this God who has loved us and given His Son for us. A desire, an affection for God and His Word. Friends, some of the most effective, powerful, useful Christians, some of the most effective, powerful, useful churches are not those churches filled with the greatest minds. It's not churches with the most spectacular gifts. It's not the church with the greatest preaching. It's not the Christian with the most sound theology. It's not the church with the greatest numbers. It is often the church and the Christian with the most sincere and true repentance. Wrought, worked by the Holy Spirit. Hearts broken and contrite before God. This is what we'll learn in the Beatitudes that Jesus begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who feel an impoverishment of their spirit are in a place to be filled by God used by the Holy Spirit in powerful, powerful ways. And that's what the psalmist says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This repentance, this is our blessing. This is God's grace to us. It's not to discourage us. It's to actually grow us in the assurance of our salvation. This is what John says at the end. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. He will gather his wheat into the barn. 
John's preparing the way for the coming of the king to do this work of indeed separating the wheat from the chaff and gathering his people. It's not to discourage us. It's to grow our assurance in God's saving grace that our confidence ultimately would not be in our own intellect or our own will or our own obedience, but in his abundant mercy and and grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that, that what we've heard from John in one word, repent, you have provided by your spirit, by your word, by your grace, this doorway that as we are broken by your grace, as we repent before you, that you fill us with times of renewal, times of refreshing. We pray, Lord, that we might be, as the Puritan said, willing to be tried and examined. That you would have your way with us, O Lord. And that our hearts would be indeed broken by the things that break the heart of the Lord Jesus. Do that work in us. A work that only you are able to do, Lord, by your Spirit. Not the man who wills or the man who runs, but by your Spirit and by your grace. Lord, continue, we trust, to form us together, Lord, with one mind in Jesus Christ. A people broken before you, but a people empowered by the very Spirit of the living God. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.